So this morning I'd like to reflect, I think in a somewhat circular way, around the theme of embodiment. And this is a, this is a theme and a reflection that I, I've spent a lot of time with over the last couple of years. And I, I often think about how, how much embodiment is really at the heart of everything that we do here. And in some ways, I feel that embodiment is almost a synonym for, for nibbana, for awakening. I mean, it is clear the value of taking these times of, of silent retreat and sustained practice because we so much kind of lay the conditions that incline the mind towards understanding and stillness and quietude are certainly part of some of those conditions that incline the mind towards understanding. But reflecting more widely on the Buddha's teaching, you know, his concern was not just about what people did on a cushion or with their eyes closed. His concern was clearly making that translation of understanding so that it pervades everything that we do, everything that we think, all of the choices that we make, the words that we speak. And this was the concern of embodiment. And I think for most people on this path, this is a challenging question. Because the moment that any of us start to think or reflect upon embodiment, what comes to mind? The uncomfortable awareness of dissonance. That gap that can exist between what we aspire to, what we value, what we hold to be worthy, and then how we live, how we think, how we speak, how we act. And I think there's something quite uh, helpful and actually quite important about being willing to explore the discomfort of dissonance. Because whenever we are aware of dissonance, the gap between how we are and what we aspire to, it generally points us towards really examining some of our most deeply embedded habit patterns and domains of selfing and domains of clinging. I think sometimes, particularly for people in practice, it's very easy to become quite judgmental and in a way quite unforgiving about those gaps. You know, and you hear the inner voice that says, you know, I should have been kinder, I should have been more generous, I should have been more mindful, I, I should have been more compassionate. You know, and you hear that little inner voice that tends to come through. And certainly that's one way of reacting to the discomfort of dissonance. But actually I think dissonance points us towards a much more creative tension that invites not judgment, but that invites investigation, because in a very real way, the domains of dissonance in our practice are really the classroom also of our practice. You know, and one has to have a certain 
kind of, I think, compassion for people on this path, because before you began to practice, you know, it seemed like already it was quite a big job to get through life as a fairly decent, non-violent human being, you know, and then you come into this tradition and your portfolio of expectation dramatically expands, you know, that's not enough anymore. Now we have all of these other things we're meant to be aspiring to and understanding and embodying. But this is a creative tension, and the Buddha constantly spoke, I think. He was a, he was a pragmatist, he was a realist, I think he constantly was aware of the tension of waking up, which is why he often spoke of this path as swimming against the tide. You know, that into our habit patterns, into our mechanisms of clinging, we're sowing and re-sowing that intention to walk a new pathway. And we see in our own lives, you know, that, that it, it, it varies, doesn't it? Sometimes that intention to walk a new pathway comes with considerable ease. And sometimes it doesn't. You know, sometimes we see the habit patterns that are so familiar to us appear to hold far more power and far more strength than any intention that we put into that mix. But as the Buddha pointed out, this is not then an invitation to become despairing or to form all kinds of self-views about our hopelessness and our incompetence and our inadequacy. That to be able to see those moments where habit pattern and intention are coexisting not as impossible moments, but really almost moments where, with mindfulness, we're learning sometimes we have a choice about where we're going to hang our, the hat of our attention and the hat of our effort and the hat of our dedication. So what we, I think it becomes evident that all spiritual traditions, including the Dharma, you know, has roots. And it has, they have roots in some very core human longings. In the longing to be loved, the longing to be accepted, the longing to be respected, the, the longings that we have to be free from pain, to be free from distress and loneliness. The longing that we have to have a heart and mind that actually feels to be a friend, a place of refuge for us. The longing to have a life that feels to have some worthiness and some meaning. And, you know, I think people in this tradition and perhaps, you know, people in Western culture are often quite shy about articulating these longings. Although it is good for us to remember them. And it's good for us, I think, to re-articulate them again and again, because it is really those longings that actually give a sense of direction to what we're doing here and give a sense of meaning to the path. And I think the great blessing of, of traditions and teachings such as this is they are not shy about giving language to these longings and to honor these longings to cultivate a way of being in this world, which is the most noble way to live. 
There's a very simple and clear proposal in this teaching that says, you know, that the seeds are very profound compassion, very profound wakefulness, kindness, understanding, live within every human heart. And the Buddha looked for graduates. He did not look for, you know, eternal devotees or followers. His encouragement was always that people, anyone, with the right willingness, the right sincerity, the right dedication, would actually come to understand exactly the same understandings that he had come to that so transformed his own heart and mind. And in a way, there's, there's a, I think there's a value in almost kind of reclaiming that sense of direction in our path, reclaiming that sense of possibility, and reclaiming the, the reality that this teaching, this path, is, is not about just being with what is. That's a great first step. But this path and this teaching is peppered with, you know, if we could so use the word goals. And the core goal, or the core aspiration, of course, is awakening, is liberation. Now, what we do see in our own practice, when we look very carefully, is, is the awareness of how our own heart and our own mind lives really in a state of potentiality being shaped moment to moment by a whole range of different factors. At times our mind, our heart, is shaped by fear, by anger, by contractedness, by depression, by beliefs in insufficiency. And we see when our mind and our heart is shaped in this way, so too are our thoughts and our acts and also our sense of possibility really shaped by those factors. There are other moments when we clearly see that our minds and our hearts are shaped by calm, by spaciousness, by peace, by compassion. And this too then shapes the kind of thoughts that run through our minds, often many less, by the way. Shapes too our sense of possibility and our sense of aspiration. Now, what the Dharma, this teaching and practice, suggests, of course, is that we are not at all helpless in this shaping process. In fact, the invitation is to be a conscious participant in the quality of our own hearts, the quality of our own minds, the quality of our own lives, moment to moment. That simple formula, that what the mind frequently inclines towards, this is what it will become, or what we frequently think about and dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind and indeed the shape of our world. How to be awake, how to live aligned with what we most deeply value, what we most aspire to, this is the dilemma of every human life and they're very, very timeless questions how to be at peace with ourselves, how to be at peace with others, how to heal pain, how to contribute to healing the pain in our world, which seems so endless. The questions of how to embrace loss, our mortality, unwelcome change, 
with grace and with fearlessness. How to live in this world which feels so scarred by ill will and by conflict with a sense of dignity. And if you look back over the history of, of traditions and pathways, it's almost like two different avenues have, have been part of every, every spiritual tradition that I know of. When people are faced with the dilemma of the difficulty of being a human being in a difficult world, it's almost as if there are two pathways that are suggested. One pathway is, is the suggestion of transcendence, of going beyond, of getting out of the suggestion or the idea that, you know, all of this is such a mess, that surely that which is sacred or that which is free must lie somewhere else, not in this world which feels so problematic. And we see historically how people have followed that pathway, endeavoring to get out of the difficult, you know, endeavoring to get out of themselves, essentially mortifying the body, trying to subdue the mind with concentration, trying to disconnect from the world. And mostly, of course, it, it, it's kind of, these kind of mechanisms, I would say, are operationally ineffective, um, that they just don't work. They just don't work. I mean, we, we're here, you know, and, you know, what do you meet when you sit down on your cushion? Your mind, your body, your life, you know, you could go to the most remote cave and, you know, you would close your eyes and what would you meet? You know, you don't have to go very far to meet greed, hatred and delusion. You know, we just need to close our eyes a little, you know, and there we are. There we are. And the Buddha didn't entirely abandon the possibility of transcendence, but what the Buddha suggested to transcend is struggle and distress and the causes of struggle and distress. And that this really is the heart of our practice, something that is applied really moment to moment. If we don't go the transcendence route, divorcing, disconnecting, and you know, we, we have our own ways of doing that, by the way, you know whether it's a sort of benign cup of tea in a difficult moment or sleep or, you know, generally distractedness or busyness. We have lots of ways of trying to get out that are, you know, not quite as severe as lying on beds of nails. But, you know, we have our own fields of expertise, I might say, of disconnection. But if we see for ourselves that they are operationally ineffective, this is my phrase of the moment, you know, if it doesn't work, don't do it. <laughs> you know, if you went and bought a coffee maker and it didn't produce coffee but produced, you know, bricks, you'd give it up, wouldn't you? <laughs> We're not quite so good at it in some of our own mechanisms, but actually if we see that something's operationally ineffective, then clearly we face the question of, of what it, does it mean to be embodied? What does it mean to actually uh, transcend suffering? What does it mean to actually live in this life, live in this mind, and live in this body How do, and, uh, with, with understanding, with compassion, with kindness, with equanimity, 
How do we find freedom in this very moment we are inhabiting? And how do we manifest that in our actions, our speech, and our thoughts, and all the ways that we engage with the world? I think sometimes this sounds like a very big ask, but then we need to remember that the, the invitation and the challenge of this path that sometimes seems so immense and at times seems so impossible is only equal to the size of the moment. You know, we're not rehearsing tomorrow's awakening. You know, we're certainly not rehearsing tomorrow's compassion. You know, we're not getting ready to be kinder when we leave the retreat. This is about what we actually embody, what we actually exemplify in relationship to our thoughts, our acts, our speech. So we have this question, what do we do with a mind? What do we do with a life? What do we do with a world that simply doesn't go away? And there are two choices. We can turn away with agitation and fearfulness, or we can turn towards and really examine for ourselves what does that actually mean. And when the Buddha got up from the Bodhi tree, he, he did not then go out into the world proclaiming the wonders of some amazing experience that he had had, past tense. He did not get up from the Bodhi tree, you know, encouraging others to have their own Bodhi tree experiences and then go on. When the Buddha got up from the Bodhi tree, the way that he really formulated that time was in the language of what he had understood and how that understanding had transformed his heart, his mind, his way of seeing, how that understanding had essentially brought suffering and struggle and its causes to an end. And then we come to this word, insight, another word for understanding. You know, many people here, if they kind of reflected or, or gave language to the teaching that they practice or the pathway that they engage in, would often frame it as an insight meditation, as an insight tradition. Now, clearly, we do not practice insight, by the way, but we, we can certainly direct our practices in ways which really incline themselves towards understanding. And this is another word we can be quite shy about, you know, if, if someone gave you the exercise of, you know, every time you come to an interview, we want you to report your insights. That could feel slightly intimidating, um, you know, because first of all, we're not quite sure maybe what they look like, you know, or what kind of insights we're supposed to have, or how we'll know if we had them, you know, or if they're the correct ones, and we can have all kinds of images about insights, and there's lots of books about it, you know, that you're going to have these enlightenment moments, you know, where everything will stop, and you have your own collision with emptiness, and, you know, of course, for some people, and it's not that uncommon, you know, people do have epiphany moments. 
you know, where suddenly something we've reflected on a thousand times suddenly becomes unarguable for us. You know, it becomes so clear. But of course, most, most understandings are, are like something like a good cheese. They mature. They mature quietly. They don't have bells and smells, you know. They mature quietly. And sometimes we don't even notice that maturing until, you know, in a moment we find ourselves quite unhesitatingly following a pathway of kindness rather than judgment. Or there's a moment where quite unhesitatingly we, 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 we see the argument with our, our own arguments with being present and we suddenly discover it's a joy. You know? And we see this quiet maturing often through what falls away through what begins to fall away. And there are two domains. I, I think of them as two domains of insight or understanding. And one of them is the domain of, of personal understanding. And this is not to be dismissed. You know, I, again, I, I hear too often in, in, in Dharma circles, you know, just get over yourself. You know, and, you know, never mind all that kind of psychological and emotional mess, you know, just get out of it, get over it. I, I think this is unhelpful. I, I think it leads often to quite disembodied and dysfunctional human beings, in truth. You know, when you sit on a cushion, you meet yourself, and the practice is a mirror for everything that goes on in our minds, in our hearts, in our bodies. And we are relational human beings. You know, we are re relational beings that are asked to engage with those around us, those we love, those we struggle with, those we don't know. And that personal understanding of actually what shapes us how do we know ourselves to be the kind of person we believe ourselves to be? How our minds work, how our hearts work, the places that are sticky for us, the places that are more easeful. How do we know ourselves? This is our first classroom of understanding. It's not that this is a hierarchical classrooms of understanding, but I've yet to meet anybody who bypasses themselves on the way to liberation. And it is in, within this domain of personal insight, learning to be at peace with ourselves, that we actually develop so many of the paramis, the noble qualities, the perfections, that actually then impact upon all of the ways that we engage with the world. Within ourselves, we learn the, the qualities of patience, of generosity, of equanimity, of investigation, of kindness, all of the fabric of compassion. And we learn this in relationship to our mind, to our bodies, to our thoughts, to the places we falter, to the places that are easeful. And it's not then, okay, well, I've done that, you know, and now I'm a kind of reconstituted human being, you know, and now I get on with the real business of practice and I'm going to study Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. It's not how it is. This is not a kind of hierarchical process. These two domains of insight, both the personal story that I would call and the universal story of change, of Dukkha, of non-self. I think these two domains of insight really sit side by side. 
They inform each other and they influence each other. When the Buddha got up from the Bodhi tree and talked about his understandings, he talked about compassion. And he talked about understanding the universal story. Understanding these universal laws of, of change, impermanence, instability. Understanding the nature of dukkha, the nature of the human condition. And what kind of anguish is optional and how it is caused. And he talked very clearly about understanding non-self. About seeing how this understanding truly changes our lives, changes our way of being, and opens the door to compassion. Now, when I started off speaking about embodiment and dissonance, I think there, there can be some quite big gaps, can't there, if we look at this in just a very kindly way. There can be some quite big gaps between what we know and how what we live in the light of. And the thing that I think is important to, to really acknowledge is that insight has implications. Understanding has implications. It's not some sort of bubble. It has implications about how we live, about how we engage, about how we see. And I want to just read you a, a short list of what we know. This is what we know. I think everybody here knows all of this. And this was kind of the genius of the Buddha's teaching, wasn't it? He, he didn't try and tell people something they didn't already know. They knew, actually, much of it through their own life experience, through, what the, how, through living in this world. And yet the knowing not being internalized or naturalized into an understanding that transforms. So let me give you a brief list of what we know. We know about change and impermanence, don't we? Anybody not know this? Just kind of came across it for the first time at Gaia House, you know. Change? I never knew about that. You know? We, we know this. Our whole life has been teaching us about change and impermanence, hasn't it? How many things have disappeared in your life? How many losses have there been? How many things have changed? How many ways your view of who you are has changed? How many people around you have changed? How many thoughts have changed? Hmm? How many body experiences have changed? We actually know about this. Um, we don't always want to know. I mean, we only want to know about this, actually, as a friend of mine says, when it benefits us. And then Friday I had a root canal. I was really happy about impermanence when it was over. I was delighted. You know. huh? Sometimes we just don't want to know when it doesn't benefit us or when it seems to threaten us with loss or, 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 or disintegration or dissolution. But let's not go into that right now. We do know about this. Eh? We know about change. We know about impermanence. We know about uncertainty and instability. All of the ways that our world can crumble in a moment. Look at the weather. Look at the body 
look at our life. We know about uncertainty and instability. Again, this is not something we learned when we were, you know, 28 or 35 years old. We've actually been invited to learn this our whole life. We actually know about the dimension of dukkha, which is dukkha dukkha. We know about the pain of pain. We know the ways that our bodies can struggle with illness, with frailty, with, with pain. We actually know that none of us, I hope we know this, none of us are exempt from the first ennobling truth. That pain, aging, sickness, and indeed death are part of all of our lives. We hopefully know this. It takes only a little bit of investigation for most of us to actually know that self is not a noun, but it is a verb. That it's quite difficult to pin down any enduring, eternal, independent, reliable me. You are probably different right now than you were at breakfast. Hmm? Probably a different me that will turn up this evening than went to lunch. Hmm? We actually know this. We, you know, despite the t-shirt that says it is actually all about me, it's actually not. Hmm? And on some level we do know this. We know that to live in a way in this world that is governed by craving, by fear and aversion, only has one outcome in emotional and psychological pain, defensiveness and ill will. Actually, most of us really do know that craving is not a pathway to the end of suffering. Hmm? Although we don't always want to know that piece either. But most of us do know this. Despite our temporary successes in getting what we want, it is basically another of those mechanisms that's operationally ineffective. Doesn't deliver. We know the power of generosity. We know that without the generosity of many in our lives, we would not be here. We know the power that generosity has to gladden our hearts, to engage in the world in a way that feels truly free and meaningful. We know the value of mindfulness. We know the value of wakefulness, of being present in our lives in a way that enables responsiveness, appreciation, and refuge. We know the power of kindness and compassion, whether it is in the ways that it's touched our lives and been received, or the way that it's, we have been able to hold others in the embrace of kindness and compassion. We know the value of this. We know in our own experience that grasping and clinging leads only to agitation and we've all known moments when that is not happening. We know the value of inner stillness, the ground of inner listening. We know, I hope, 
that genuine joy and happiness can only be inwardly generated. Can only be inwardly generated. We know about interdependence, the way that our lives rests upon so many lives, rests upon so much that is given or not given. So this is a domain, I would suggest, of our knowing. I doubt if any of this is new information to you. Um, Probably not so many arguments with it. You might be able to add to that list of what we know, and and that's great if you can. I think this is a work in progress. Um, And then the question is, the questions are, what is it that makes us forgetful? about what we know? This is a really good question for practice. What is it that makes us forgetful about what we know? And this this is not a judgment. This is a a genuine investigation to be undertaken with some, some happiness, some interest, some dedication. What is it that makes us forgetful, that creates dissonance? What is it, what, what's going on inwardly that creates the gaps between what we value, aspire to, and intend, and how we live, think, speak, and act? And the second question, I think, is, is what is needed for us to naturalize, to truly contemplate, to internalize, to naturalize? What is needed for us to naturalize, to let our knowing sink into our bones so that our knowing is our understanding and the foundation of all our acts, all our speech, all our thoughts and our choices. What would we cultivate? What is helpful for us to cultivate to allow knowing to move to unshakable and unarguable understanding. These are questions for all of us, and they're questions that really speak, I think, to the nature of waking up, waking up from being caught or being in a state of argument with what we know, the arguments that we can never win. To also reflect upon the implications of insight. What are the implications of impermanence and change? The universal laws that our whole life has been teaching us. I think we could write a second list of knowing here. We know that the implications of change and impermanence is, is to not cling, to not cling, to know the ineffectiveness of clinging. We know about uncertainty and instability, and what are the implications of that knowing? For me, it's to genuinely find a refuge within the instability, the refuge of our own understanding, the refuge of our own hearts and minds. We know about dukkha, 
what is the implication of an understanding that we are not exempt from the first ennobling truth? It has many invitations towards compassion. It has many invitations of surrendering all of the agitation and the strategies of avoidance and denial and judgment and blame and disconnection. What are the implications of understanding that selfing is a verb and not a noun? Perhaps we learn to question all of those moments when I feel so solid, so sure, so convinced, so definite, so identified, so identified. It's perhaps an invitation to look at that constructing process, that movement from verb into noun, and how identification is always implicated. What is the implication of our knowing that craving and fear and aversion only has the outcomes of pain and distress? There's a lot of implications here about finding an inner sufficiency, addressing the culture of inner lack, learning to cultivate a greater sense of befriending and contentment, in the midst of all things. Knowing the power of generosity, the invitation is to deepen that capacity, to see the moments when it's truly present and get a felt sense of how that is for us. Have a moment when we feel ungenerous towards ourselves, towards others. Is it possible to turn the tide of that? Knowing the value of mindfulness, of being awake in our life, is certainly an invitation to to really deeply know the moments of unconsciousness, know the moments of forgetfulness, to not feel, you know, there's a strange things where, you know, there's a place we can be in where forgetfulness sometimes looks like good news. You know, I just don't want to be aware of all of this. I remember here years ago somebody telling me on this retreat, you know, of the torture of going to the village store to buy a chocolate bar because they just wanted a break from being mindful, you know, and they just wanted to feel good. And yet the whole trek up to the store was shadowed by that voice that says, you know, you really don't need to be doing this, you know, this is really not going to be that great, you know. The whole way back post-chocolate bar was, I really didn't need to be doing that, you know. I, I, you know, you know to, to actually really look at the attraction of forgetfulness, how, it, how, you know, sometimes amnesia feels like a good idea, you know, and yet the difficulty is, quite frankly, we don't put this on our brochures, actually once you really start to wake up, it's very difficult to go back to sleep. It's very difficult to turn that voice off. We know, we know what's going on. To find the joy in mindfulness. To really discover the joy in being more awake. How it illuminates the world around us. How it wakes up the world around us. Allowing us to see wholeheartedly. Allowing us to listen wholeheartedly. Allowing us to be present in this life, however it may be. 
Knowing the power of kindness and compassion, we know they are deeply worthy of cultivating, they are deeply worthy of our dedication. That any moment, when in any way, when we have departed from kindness and compassion, we have forgotten something that is simply too important to forget. And how much those qualities need to inform the whole of our practice. Every time we sit, every time we walk, all of our thinking. Knowing that grasping and clinging leads only to agitation and contractedness, the implication is that we we have some dedication to cultivating the conditions of non-grasping. We don't shout at ourselves to let go. Again, operationally ineffective, it doesn't work. Um, But we cultivate the conditions of non-clinging. Stillness, spaciousness, kindness, sensitivity, mindfulness. Knowing that genuine happiness and joy is generated inwardly, we dedicate ourselves to that. To finding that place, those those moments within ourselves, that sense of this is a happiness that can be relied upon. This is a joy that can be relied upon. That which is generated inwardly, far more than any passing or fleeting gratification that may come through the sense doors. And we dedicate ourselves to discovering that, developing that, deepening that. Learning to make that transition from knowing to understanding, I think, is a journey for all of us. It's a journey of happiness. It's a journey of joy. It's a journey of awakening. We appreciate the moments of forgetfulness without being discouraged or judgmental or disheartened, knowing that those actually are the classrooms of where we learn to truly cultivate a sense of embodiment. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.